real knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. My name is Stephanie, and I'm excited to bring to you this next episode of Trivial Knowledge. Today, we are going to learn all about the interesting history of Nintendo, and then discover what causes the Aurora Borealis. But before we start, here's a little bit of background for those who are listening for the first time. Each podcast episode brings you a weekly dose of knowledge from five different topics drawn from four broad categories. And to add to the fun, one topic will be acquired from a random Wikipedia page. With such an extensive range of topics, there's going to be something here for everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's dive into episode 33. From Nintendo to the Aurora Borealis. Social Sciences Today, we are going to take another trip to the past, where we are going to explore ancient Greek mythology. In episode 2, we learned about the tragedy of Niobe, but in today's episode, our focus will be on Theseus, best known for his defeat of the Minotaur. But his story doesn't start there, so let's go back to the early life of Theseus. Theseus was born to Aethra, the daughter of the king of Torzen. His father was more of a mystery though, as due to certain circumstances that occurred, it could either have been King Aegeus of Athens or the Greek god Poseidon. Theseus was raised in Torzen by his mother, which was located in the northeast of Peloponnese. It wasn't until he reached adulthood though that he found out who his father was, or at least might be. Now before Theseus was born, King Aegeus had buried two gifts for his son underneath a heavy rock. A quote from the story from the Greek mythology website says, If you bore a son in nine months, King Aegeus told Aethra, and if he is able to lift this rock once he reaches manhood, then send him to Athens with this sword and these sandals, for then I know that he is indeed my son, the future king of Athens. When Theseus grew into young adulthood and was strong enough to lift the rocks, he claimed the gifts left there for him by his father. With these gifts now acquired, it was time for him to travel to Athens and claim his status as heir to the throne. While his mother asked that Theseus travel there by boat, which was less dangerous, Theseus wanted to prove himself, took off by land. Between him and the city were a string of monsters and villains which he had to fight to finally reach Athens. Each battle with these villains and monsters was unique, and he dispatched of each one the same way in which the villains and monsters terrorized their victims. Those which Theseus fought included Periphetus, Cenus, who he hit with a bent tree, Skyron, who fell into the sea, Kirkion, and Procrustes. Finally, he arrived at Athens, but his battles weren't over yet, for he had met his next match, his stepmother, Medea, who was also a sorceress, as it happens. Medea, having realized that this was her husband's son, was determined to be rid of him before her husband realized his son had arrived, as she didn't want Theseus to claim his right as heir to the throne. So Medea set him off to deal with the bull of Marathon, which was terrorizing people. It is believed that this bull was the same bull which Hercules captured for his seventh labor. 
Now Theseus survived the bull, but Medea, not ready to give in quite yet, turned to her second plan, involving a feast and a cup of poison. But just as Theseus was about to take a sip from the poisonous cup, Aegeus recognized the sandals that Theseus wore and the sword he carried and knew that Theseus was his son. He confirmed Theseus as his rightful successor and once again Theseus survived Medea's attempt to get rid of him permanently. Now recognized as the official heir, Theseus wasn't one to just sit back and relax. No, his next journey saw him traveling to Crete as he volunteered to be tribute to the Minotaur. Each year, Athens was mandated to send seven young men and seven young women to Crete as sacrifices for the Minotaur of King Minos. The Minotaur, which had the body of a man and the head of a bull, lived in a labyrinth at Gnosis, which was built by the famed architect Daedalus. Theseus was resolute to stop these sacrifices and sailed to Crete as one of the seven young men. Before he was put into the labyrinth, Ariadne, the daughter of King Minos, fell in love with him on his arrival. Wanting to ensure survival, she was able to convince Daedalus to tell her its secrets. Meeting up with Theseus as he was entering the labyrinth, she gave him a ball of yarn she had received from Daedalus, which would help him navigate the maze. Using the yarn to mark his way through the winding corridors, he was able to find the beast, kill it, and then follow the yarn back through the labyrinth, all the way to the entrance. And this was how he freed Athens from their terrible obligation. He sailed home to Athens, but this is where the story took a turn for the worse. Before he left, Theseus promised his father that he would sail home under a white sail instead of his usual black sail. But for some reason, Theseus forgot to make this switch, and when King Aegeus saw the black sail, he died from grief. Theseus inherited the throne. As king, Theseus is best known for his unification of small settlements into a single political unit, and he led a peaceful, prosperous time for Athens. Today, Theseus can be found in many books and plays, and even helped inspire Suzanne Collins in her book trilogy, The Hunger Games. Sports and Entertainment Until recently, I always figured that Nintendo was established in the mid or late 20th century, but then I was watching Mr. Beast's creator games and was surprised to find out that actually, Nintendo got its start not in the late 20th century, not even in the 20th century at all, but in 1889. Thankfully, none of the contestants got that question right either, so I felt a little bit better about myself. And even better, that I had a new topic to research for this podcast episode, the history of Nintendo. So obviously being established in 1889, Nintendo did not start off as a video game company. In fact, the company has its roots in playing cards. But before we get to that, we need to understand a little bit about the history of playing cards in Japan. In the 17th century, Japan cut itself off from the Western world, and around the same time also banned the import of playing cards, which had led to gambling problems in the country. Despite this ban, through the next couple hundred of years, new card games were invented, but then subsequently banned over and over again. Finally, in the 19th century, a brand new card game was invented called Hanafuda, which used images on the cards instead of numbers, making it a much more difficult way to gamble. 
Eventually, the Japanese government relaxed their stance on card games and it became legal to sell Hanafuda cards, though the response was initially lackluster. And this is where Nintendo comes in. Fusajiro Yamauchi, at 29 years old, saw an opening and started producing high-quality Hanafuda playing cards in Kyoto, Japan, selling them through the company he founded, Nintendo Kopai. Kopai meaning cards in Japanese. His company became a success and by the early 1900s was the largest playing card selling company in Japan. In 1902, the company expanded from selling Hanafudu cards to also producing the first Western-style playing cards, originally intended for export to other countries, but would become popular in Japan as well. Fusajiro Yamauchi would remain in charge of the company until 1950, when Hiroshi Yamauchi took over from his grandfather at 22 years old after dropping out from law school so he could run the business. Despite his young age, Hiroshi Yamauchi was a tough employer, not afraid to fire those who crossed him, and he made it a rule that all new ventures and products had to be solely approved by him. But he was also successful. But he was also successful, and would transition the company to become the Nintendo we all know today. In 1959, the company established a game card licensing deal with Disney and began selling cards with Walt Disney characters on them, opening their market to children's playing cards. As the playing card market became saturated though, and less and less people were buying them, Hiroshi Yamauchi knew that unless things changed at Nintendo, the company may not survive. One day, as he was visiting a manufacturing assembly line, he noticed that one of the maintenance engineers, Gunpei Yokoi was playing with an extended arm he had designed and built. Hiroshi was impressed and ordered it into production, calling it the Yuratora Hando or Ultra Hand. Its instant success led Nintendo into their transition into a toy manufacturer. Yamauchi recognized the talents of Yokoi and promoted him to the head of the new games and setup department within Nintendo, which oversaw product development. With this transition successfully made, Nintendo became a thriving company again. In 1963, the company officially changed its name to Nintendo Company, and in 1969, their success in games led to the expansion of their game department. Another of their early successes in the gaming business was the creation of the Beam Guns series, which was the first time that electronics entered the toy industry in Japan. In 1974, they began exporting arcade machines to America and Europe, but it was in 1977 that they developed their first video game for home use. One console was the Color TV Game 6, developed in 1977, which was basically a Pong clone with several variations of Pong on it. The console became very popular, boosting Nintendo onto the global stage, and Nintendo was able to open up Nintendo of America in New York City. This brings us to 1980 and the development of what is probably the most well-known character in Nintendo games. It all started with Nintendo artist Miyamoto, who developed a character called Jumpman, a carpenter whose goal in the game was to save his girlfriend Pauline from a crazed ape called Donkey Kong. This was one of the first, if not the first, story-based video game, and people were unsure how well it would sell, but it became the hottest-selling game when it was released in 1981 as a coin-operated machine. The character Jumpman, though, was renamed before the game was released. 
The developers noted that Jumpman had a close resemblance to their office landlord, Mario Sigali, and thus Mario was born. Nintendo's successes would continue, and in 1984, Nintendo launched the Famicom system in Japan, short for Family Computer. The console was a success in Japan, but wasn't released right away in the United States due to the 1983 video game market crash. This occurred because Atari, who had released a game console in the United States, was unable to stop unauthorized companies from designing games for their system, and these games were typically of very poor quality. This caused the entire industry to suffer from a poor reputation. Because of this, Nintendo had difficulty finding a distributor for their new system, and US customers weren't that excited about video games in the first place. But despite all this against them, Nintendo didn't let this stop them. They redesigned the console to look like an Entertainment Center component and renamed it the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES for short. They also developed a 10 NES lockout chip, which would stop other companies from releasing unauthorized low-quality games to the system. They also added a Nintendo seal of quality so that consumers would recognize the authorized and licensed games. They finally released the system worldwide in 1985, to much success, and the modern history of Nintendo begun. Nintendo would go on to develop many other consoles as we know, including Super Nintendo, Nintendo 64, Nintendo Wii, and most recently, the popular Nintendo Switch. They also developed the Pokemon characters in 1996, which yielded over $5 billion in their first year of release. They have sold over 4.7 billion video games and 750 million hardware units globally, and in 2019 had net sales of over $11 billion. But despite their huge success, they haven't forgotten their roots. The Fire Flower and Piranha Plants in their Super Mario Bros. games pay homage to the company's history of Hanafuda cards. Science and Technology those who have been lucky enough to have seen the Aurora Borealis tend to describe it as an experience they will never forget. But what causes these beautiful light shows in the sky? That is what we are here to learn today. The Aurora Borealis has been described since ancient times with cave paintings dating back 30,000 years ago in France depicting illustrations of the auroras. Aristotle, Descartes, Goethe, and Halley all referred to the Northern Lights in their work. But the name of the lights have been jointly credited to Pierre Gassendi and Galileo Galilei. The name is believed to come from the Roman goddess of dawn, Aurora, and the Greek name for wind of the north, Boreas. What actually causes the Aurora Borealis, though, is the collision of particles in the Earth's atmosphere with particles from the Sun's atmosphere, and we are now going to discuss how this occurs, starting with sunspots. On the surface of the sun, sunspots occur when the sun's magnetic fields twist as the sun rotates. This causes explosions, which create the sunspots. When the surface temperature of the sun rises, charged particles escape from the regions where there are sunspots. The particles travel on the solar wind to reach Earth's atmosphere, a trip which typically takes 40 hours to complete. As they get closer to Earth, the charged particles are attracted to the north and south magnetic poles. Crossing through the magnetic field, the charged particles mix with atmospheric gases, oxygen, nitrogen, and other elements, and this mixing creates the beautiful colors of the aurora borealis. 
In fact, both the gases the particles mix with and the altitude determine the colors that are created. The Aurora Borealis comes in an assortment of colors including pinks, greens, yellows, blues, and violets which are the most common, though orange and white can also sometimes be seen. Collisions with oxygen causes the yellow and green colors, while collisions with nitrogen causes the red, violet, and sometimes blue colors. The type of collision can also lead to variations in color with atomic nitrogen collisions causing blue colors and molecular nitrogen collisions causing the purple colors. The altitude also affects the colors displayed, with green lights appearing below heights of 150 miles or 241 kilometers high and red above. Blues typically appear at heights below 60 kilometers, while purple and violet are seen above. Now where are the best places to see the Aurora Borealis? Typically Alaska, Northern Canada, Norway, Sweden, and Finland are popular tourist spots for those seeking out the Aurora. The Aurora can also be seen in the Southern Hemisphere though, it goes by the name Aurora Australis. In fact, scientists have learned that in the majority of times, the northern and southern auroras are actually mirror-like images occurring at the same time with similar colors. The lights are a little bit more difficult to see in the southern hemisphere as they are typically located in a ring around Antarctica. Sometimes though, if the lights are particularly active, they can be seen from southern Australia and New Zealand and in the northern hemisphere as far south as Scotland, northern England, and New England in the United States. Yellowknife Canada is the capital for Aurora tourism and even has its own Aurora village. Other popular tourist spots include Fairbanks, Alaska, Iceland, Tromsø, Norway, which we discussed in episode 10. Typically the best time to see the lights is in winter, and several organizations monitor the solar activity from the sun and issue Aurora alerts, including NASA. I hope you enjoyed this quick venture into what causes the Aurora Borealis. Geography and World Culture Today we are going to continue our series on different cuisines from around the world. In previous episodes, we have discussed Cameroonian cuisine, Serbian cuisine, and Hungarian cuisine. Today, we are going to discover Tibetan cuisine. Tibetan foods are significantly influenced by the high-altitude environment where Tibetans live, as this restricts the food that can be grown. While the lower regions can grow rice, bananas, oranges, and lemons, the main crop that Tibetans are known for is its highland barley, which a lot of their foods are dependent on. According to a series on Tibetan cuisine posted on the Eat Your World blog in January of 2018, there are four treasures of Tibetan cuisine. The first is butter tea. Butter tea is the most popular Tibetan drink. The history of tea in Tibet dates back to the 7th century when tea traders travel along the ancient tea horse road from China. Butter tea traditionally is made from tea leaves, yak butter, water, and salt. Its consistency is closer to soup than tea, but it is nutritious and high in calories, which is needed in the higher elevations of Tibet. It is drunk throughout the day as well, as it also helps people stay warm. The next treasure is Sampa, which is a hugely popular food. It consists of a mixture of barley flour and tea. To make it, you first leave the tea in the bottom of the bowl and add a dollop of Sampa flour to it. You then mix the flour and tea with your forefinger, and once mixed, begin kneading it with your hand. Make sure to twist the bowl to ensure that all bits of the sampa are obtained from the side. 
Once you have created a round dumpling-like shape, you have completed making sampa and may now eat it. Sampa, as many Tibetan foods, is high energy and people often will eat it during long journeys. Next up is high-protein meats. Dried yak meat is the most staple type of meat and is usually dried during the winter with the season's cold dry winds. Other meats include mutton and goat. Fish is typically not eaten as it takes a lot more fish to feed people than the larger land animals. And last up are noodles, which are filled with carbohydrates from eggs. Lapping is a spicy mung bean noodle dish which is a cold food eaten during summer and made with red chili peppers, green onions, cilantro, and soy sauce, though it takes over 12 hours to make. Noodles can also be served with soup or fried, though soup seems to be more common. While these are the four staples, there are two other types of food that are commonly eaten in Tibetan that I would like to talk about today. First are momos, which are steamed dumplings with some sort of filling such as meat and or vegetables. Sometimes after being steamed, they are then fried. It is unsure where momos originated, though one theory suggests its origin among the Nuwari people of Kathmandu Valley in Tibet. Baelup is a type of bread that is commonly eaten at breakfast or lunch, and each region has its own variety. The bread is made from barley, wheat, or flour, and the most popular version of it is a round flat bread made in central Tibet. Before we finish this topic, I am going to read a quote from Lobsang Wang Du, a Tibetan food and culture expert, from an article posted on the Serious East website by Joe Distinfano entitled Butter Tea, Yak Jerky, and Momos Galore, an Introduction to Tibetan Cuisine, published in 2015. He says of Tibetan cuisine, Tibetan cuisine is both unusual and comforting. The recipes are simple, hearty, and very warming. Today's random topic. Today's random Wikipedia page brings us to what may be the world's longest sidewalk, the Rambla of Montevideo. This winding sidewalk stretches 14 miles or 22.2 kilometers along the beaches of Montevideo, Uruguay. It is divided into nine named sections and 23 segments, which are based on the proximity of the Rambla to neighborhoods, beaches, and points of interest. The sidewalk begins along the Bay of Montevideo before it meets up with Ciudad Vieja, an historic old city. It then enters the downtown areas called Barrio Sur and Barrio Palermo, where it runs near the Rio de la Plata, which is a 140-mile-wide river which flows into the Atlantic. From there, it winds its way along Montevideo's most popular beaches, before ending its journey in front of the wealthy neighborhoods of the east side, Punta Gorda and Carrasco. Sites that those traveling along the Rambla can stop and see include the Punta Caritas Lighthouse, Pita Miglio Castle, and the Maritime Museum of Montevideo, not to mention the many shopping centers and beaches scattered throughout. The best way to explore the Rambla is by foot or by bicycle. If traveling by foot, it is best to split the trip up over three days, dividing the Rambla into the bay and historic areas, downtown areas, and the east side. The sidewalk is well lit at night and during the tourist season is monitored by police. It is under consideration for UNESCO heritage status as well as being officially named the longest continuous sidewalk in the world. 
And that concludes this episode of Trivial Knowledge. A little bit about the whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you were able to take away some interesting facts that were new to you and that you can share with friends and family or at your local trivia night. If you would like to learn more about topics that you enjoyed today, you can access links to more in-depth articles on my show notes blog posts on my website, www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com, which I hope to have updated by the end of this month. If you have questions or would like to leave comments about today's episode, please email me at triviaknowledge5 at gmail.com or contact me via social media links on my website. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. I look forward to our new adventures next week when we will learn about Gaelic football and much, much more. I will end this episode with a quote from James Wood. The acquisition of a book signaled not just the potential acquisition of knowledge, but also something like the property rights to a piece of ground. The knowledge became a visible place. Join me next week to learn a little bit more about a whole lot.